Welcome to this week's Digest edition of the Herald Scotland from Friday the 13th to Thursday the 19th of April 2018. Read by volunteers at Kuhn Review Print Speaking to the Blind at our studios in the Bishopriggs Media Centre. Coming up in part one. Lack of Remain voice means UK faces cliff-edge Brexit, Scottish experts warn. New missile attack reported in Syria. To ban or not to ban? Britain's headache over Russian propaganda. UK government challenges devolved Brexit legislation. Watchdog probes Kremlin TV station broadcasting Salmon Show. Theresa May denies she was following President Trump's orders to bomb Syria. Theresa May wins Commons airstrike vote but is accused of manipulating Parliament. Richard Leonard to call trade unions to reforge alliance with Labour. Government suffers double defeat over key Brexit legislation. TV review. Queen and Attenborough. Double Act Blossoms. Arts news. Poetry illustrations at National Library. Scottish talent at RPS Awards. Spark in Chinese. This article from the Herald on Monday the 16th of April 2018. News. Lack of Remain voice means UK faces cliff-edge Brexit, Scottish experts warn. This article by Stephen Naismith. Some of Scotland's leading thinkers have warned a failure by the political class to speak out against Brexit is send the country hurtling towards a cliff-edge. The lack of a strong political voice for supporters of remaining in the European Union is leaving the UK heading for a hard Brexit cliff edge, according to leading academics and experts. A new report analysing the draft Brexit agreement published by the European Commission last month warns that the 27 EU member countries are looking on in disbelief at the self-imposed damage the UK government is pursuing. The report from the Scottish Centre on European Relations features a series of contributions from leading academics at Scottish universities who claim the upside to Brexit is largely illusory and any agreement in line with the UK's red lines on freedom of movement, migration and denying a role to the European Court of Justice is incompatible with maintaining the current trade benefits of EU membership. However, they say unless there is significant political change in the UK, the cliff edge looms. The think tank has published a new report bringing together analysis of the forthcoming challenges as the process of exiting the EU unfolds. It highlights the movement of EU and UK citizens, trade arrangements, the Irish border question and environmental protections as key areas where convincing agreement has yet to be reached. UK politics is failing because of passive and fearful opposition to leaving the European Union, EU, according to a new report. Kirsty Hughes, director of the Scottish Centre on European Relations, SCER, said the UK was heading for a damaging hard Brexit because Remain voters had been left with little strong representation. Writing in the report, Ms Hughes said, As the process unfolds, the UK, and particularly England, has remained deeply divided over the question of proceeding with Brexit. 
Support for Remain has moved a little ahead in the polls over the last several months, but not strongly enough for many passive and fearful politicians to come out and argue to halt Brexit or to hold a further EU referendum. She highlighted that while the Liberal Democrats and English and Welsh Greens support a referendum on the final deal, First Minister Nicola Sturgeon has not gone so far, despite declaring it could become irresistible. Labour's acceptance of Brexit has led to weak opposition to the slow, shambolic and damaging Brexit process, with Jeremy Corbyn mostly preferring to lead on domestic issues at Prime Minister's questions each week, she added. Labour has now come out in support of staying in a customs union with the EU, but while it doesn't support staying in the EU's single market, it is not in a strong position to challenge Theresa May and her government over the economic damage a free trade deal will do. Consequently, the 48% who voted Remain, or the 52% who now support Remain in several polls, have little political voice or representation as the UK heads towards a major and damaging political, constitutional, economic and institutional upheaval that has little precedent. This is true even in the two parts of the UK that voted Remain, Scotland and Northern Ireland. The report pulls together analysis from 15 experts and commentators from Scotland, Northern Ireland and the EU who raise a range of issues about the Brexit process including the prospect of a cliff-edge exit, concerns over citizens' human rights, the problem of the Irish border and the challenges for devolution. Ms Hughes said, The path from here to an autumn withdrawal agreement is highly uncertain. Our new report makes clear the UK is on a path to a damaging hard Brexit, and without a deal on the Irish border, the divorce deal could fall apart and the transition deal with it. A cliff-edge still looms. As trade talks start unprecedented in putting new trade barriers in place, the UK could still change its mind and call a further EU referendum. Labour and the SNP for now are refusing to support this. UK politics is failing as it sticks to a passive wait-and-see mode of opposition, and the time to halt Brexit or even push it to a softer Brexit is running out. This article by Stephen Naismith. New missile attack reported in Syria. An article published in the Herald Scotland of Tuesday the 17th of April 2018. Syria's air defences have confronted a new aggression, shooting down missiles over the central region of Homs, according to state-run media. The reports did not say who carried out the pre-dawn strikes. The government-run Syrian central media said the missiles targeted the Sherat air base in Homs. Earlier this month, four Iranian military personnel were killed in an airstrike on Syria's T-4 air base, also in Homs. Syria and its main allies, Iran and Russia, blamed Israel for that attack. Israel did not confirm or deny mounting the raid. The reports came just a few days after the United States, Britain and France conducted airstrikes targeting alleged chemical weapons facilities in Syria in retaliation for a suspected chemical weapons attack that they blamed on the Syrian government. Experts from the International Chemical Weapons Watchdog are now in Damascus and have been waiting to visit the site of the suspected chemical attack in the town of Douma, just east of Damascus.
On Monday, Syrian and Russian authorities prevented investigators from the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons, OPCW, from going to the scene, the head of the OPCW said, blocking international efforts to establish what happened and who was to blame. The US and France say they have evidence that poison gas was used in the April 7th attack in Douma, killing at least 40 people, and that Syrian President Bashar Assad's military was behind it. But they have made none of that evidence public, even after they, along with Britain, carried out airstrikes on Saturday, bombing sites they said were linked to Syria's chemical weapons program. Syria and its ally Russia deny any chemical attack took place, and Russian officials went even further, accusing Britain of staging a fake chemical attack. Prime Minister Theresa May accused the two countries, whose forces now control the town east of Damascus, of trying to cover up evidence. The lack of access to Douma has left unanswered questions about the attack. OPCW Director General Amit Uzumku said Syrian and Russian officials, Russian officials cited pending security issues in keeping its inspectors from reaching Douma. The team has not yet deployed in Douma, Mr. Uzumku told an executive council meeting of the OPCW in The Hague on Monday. Instead, Syrian authorities offered them 22 people to interview as witnesses, he said, adding that he hoped all necessary arrangements will be made to allow the team to deploy to Douma as soon as possible. Russian military police were ready to help protect the OPCW experts on their visit to Douma, said Major General Yuri Yevtushenko of the Russian military's Reconciliation Center in Russia. Igor Kurilov, a Russian chemical weapons protection expert in The Hague, said the team is set to visit the site on Wednesday. Earlier on Monday, Russian Deputy Foreign Minister Sergei Ryabkov said the inspectors could not go to the site because they needed approval from the UN Department for Safety and Security. He denied that Russia was hampering the mission and suggested the approval was held up because of the Western airstrikes. As far as I understand, what is hampering a speedy resolution of this problem is the consequences of the illegal, unlawful military action that Great Britain and other countries conducted on Saturday, he said. However, UN spokesman Stefan Dujaric said the United Nations has provided the necessary clearances for the OPCW team to go about its work in Douma. We have not denied the team any request for it to go to Douma. The Herald Scotland, on Thursday the 19th of April 2018. News section. To ban or not to ban, Britain's headache over Russian propaganda. This article with Chief Reporter David Leesk. RC is propaganda. The Kremlin-owned, funded and managed channel doesn't really pretend otherwise. True, its editor does not like the P-word. She prefers the term information weapon. NATO and other defence experts are blunter. The channel, they say, is part of the disinformation wing of the Russian military. And this becomes most apparent, naturally, when Russia is at war. Only this month, the channel reported, without evidence, that the British government may have staged the poisonings of Sergei and Yulia Skripal in Salisbury. So, RT is propaganda, yes. But should it be banned? For some politicians, the answer is obvious. 
Why would a democracy let the mouthpiece of an increasingly oppressive regime broadcast straight to its homes? If only it was so easy. Taking RT off the air in Britain would be a major diplomatic event with huge international repercussions. Russia, for example, has warned that it would take tit-for-tat measures against UK media operating on its patch. That might include shutting down the BBC's Russian service, a lifeline of reliable information in an increasingly bleak news environment. The SNP is arguably the party which has warned the loudest about the channel, despite, or some cynics suggest because, its former leader has an RT show. It warns of a backlash against the BBC if there is a ban. The body with the RT headache is Ofcom. The broadcasting watchdog is currently investigating what it said was a concerning rise in problematic broadcasts. But Ofcom also has to decide whether the Russian state, deemed highly likely to have tried to poison the Skripals, is fit and proper. Revoking a licence, says Ofcom, is a major interference with freedom of expression. The standard of proof must be high. The regulator is not making its decision in a political or diplomatic vacuum. It has to consider what it calls non-broadcasting conduct, whether the Russian state murders people. Formally or not, it will have to bear in mind unintended consequences, such as a BBC ban or resulting Kremlin rhetoric on freedom of speech. Ofcom says it will give most weight to what the channel actually broadcasts. The issue may be moot. Much of RT's content is viewed online by a frighteningly easily duped audience. A TV ban might only free it to be even more outrageous. Propaganda, whatever Ofcom does, is here to stay. So maybe we should focus on how to make our society less vulnerable to it. This article by Chief Reporter David Leesk. Here at q and Review, we're always looking for more volunteer presenters, producers and sound technicians to volunteer with us and help produce our daily talking newspapers for the blind. If you're interested, please leave a message on our answering service at 0141 772 3976 or email us at information at qandreview.com. UK government challenges devolved Brexit legislation. An article published in the Herald Scotland of Tuesday the 17th of April 2018. The UK government will challenge Brexit legislation passed by the Scottish and Welsh devolved administrations. Bills passed in the Scottish Parliament and Welsh Assembly last month have been referred to the Supreme Court. The decision has been taken by the Attorney General and the Advocate General for Scotland, the government's senior law officers. The court is being asked to rule on whether the legislation is constitutional and within the powers of the devolved legislatures. Attorney General Jeremy Wright, QC, MP, said this legislation risks creating serious legal uncertainty for individuals and businesses as we leave the EU. This reference is a protective measure which we are taking in the public interest. The government very much hopes this issue will be resolved without the need to continue with this litigation. The Scottish and Welsh governments brought forward the unprecedented legislation after a row with Westminster over the return of devolved powers from Brussels once Britain leaves the EU. Ministers in both Cardiff and Edinburgh have repeatedly branded the UK government's EU withdrawal bill a power grab which threatens devolution. The Scottish Parliament's presiding officer has previously ruled the Scottish EU continuity bill is outside Holyrood's competence, although SNP ministers say they are confident it is not. 
Advocate General for Scotland, Lord Keane, said, By referring the Scottish Parliament's continuity bill to the Supreme Court, we are seeking legal certainty as to its competence. Given the presiding officer's view at introduction that the bill was not within the legal scope of the Parliament, we believe it is important to ask the Court to provide absolute clarity. In doing so, we are following the process set out in the Scotland Act 1998. Particularly in the run-up to Brexit, it is vital that we avoid legal uncertainty in our statute book awaiting the Scottish and Welsh Government response. The Herald Scotland, on Wednesday the 18th April 2018, News Section. Watchdog probes Kremlin TV station broadcasting Salmon Show. This article unattributed. Britain's TV watchdog has launched seven investigations into Kremlin disinformation channel RT. Ofcom said it was reviewing the station's licence after a significant increase in problematic content since the Salisbury poisonings of former Russian double agent Sergei Skripal and his daughter Yulia. The regulator said it believed RT's parent company, TV Novosti, had been broadly compliant until recently. RT's editor has described the channel, which broadcasts a weekly show by former First Minister Alex Salmond, as an information weapon. Ofcom said... The investigations form part of an Ofcom update published today into the licences held by TV Novosti, the company that broadcasts RT. Until recently, TV Novosti's overall compliance record has not been materially out of line with other broadcasters. However, since the events in Salisbury, we have observed a significant increase in the number of programmes on the RT service that warrant investigation as potential breaches of the Ofcom broadcasting code. We will announce the outcome of these investigations as soon as possible, In relation to our fit and proper duty, we will consider all relevant new evidence, including the outcome of these investigations and the future conduct of the licensee. This article was unattributed. Theresa May denies she was following President Trump's orders to bomb Syria. An article by Michael Settle, UK political editor, published in the Herald Scotland of Tuesday the 17th of April 2018. Theresa May has denied pandering to the whims of Donald Trump over the Syrian airstrikes as UK and US spy chiefs warned she was preparing to mount revenge cyber attacks on Britain's critical infrastructure. In a common statement, the Prime Minister also accused Moscow of helping the Syrians block weapons inspectors from visiting the site of the poison gas attack in Douma and of trying to conceal the facts of the attack, a claim denied by the Kremlin. In an unprecedented move, the UK National Cyber Security Centre, NCSC, together with the FBI and the US Department of Homeland Security, issued a joint technical alert setting out the Russian cyber threat across the public and private sectors. They said the Russian government's campaign to exploit Internet devices threatens our respective safety, security and economic well-being. Fears have been raised that Russian state hackers could disrupt Britain's power supplies, transport links and health services. Officials said the UK-US cyber alert had been planned for some time and was not directly related to the weekend missile strikes on Syria, but Kieran Martin, the NS. 
NCSC's chief executive said it was a, quote, significant moment in the fight back against Russian aggression in cyberspace. He said security services had seen the sustained targeting of multiple entities over a series of months with millions of machines around the world being targeted. Kremlin-backed hackers, Mr Martin explained, were using compromised routers to conduct spoofing man-in-the-middle attacks to support espionage and potentially lay a foundation for future offensive operations. Last night, a UK government spokesman said the Kremlin-backed cyber activity was yet another example of Russia's disregard for international norms and global order this time through a campaign of cyber espionage and aggression which attempts to disrupt governments and destabilise business. He stressed the attribution of Moscow's malicious activity sent a clear message to Russia. We know what you are doing and you will not succeed. Earlier in the comments, Mrs May told MPs the military action against the Assad regime was legally and morally right to degrade its chemical weapons capability and to deter any further use. This was not about intervening in a civil war and it was not about regime change. It was about a limited targeted and effective strike that sought to alleviate the humanitarian suffering of the Syrian people by degrading the Syrian regime's chemical weapons capability and deterring their use, she declared. The PM argued that the Allied forces could not wait for the weapons inspectors to go into Douma as the Russians had already sought to stop any investigation and were already blocking inspectors on the ground in Syria from examining the site. The regime has reportedly been attempting to conceal the evidence by searching evacuees from Douma to ensure they are not taking out of the region samples that could be tested elsewhere. And a wider operation to conceal the facts of the attack is underway, supported by the Russians, explained Mrs May. She denied that Britain was just following orders from America, telling MPs, let me be absolutely clear, we have acted because it is in our national interest to do so, to prevent the further use of chemical weapons in Syria and to uphold and defend the global consensus that these weapons should not be used. On the issue of recalling Parliament, the PM insisted this was an emergency and to protect life and the safety of Britain's forces, swift action was called for. Jeremy Corbyn said the chemical attack on was horrific, but argued the military action was legally questionable. In an at times acrimonious atmosphere, he faced shouts of shame from Tory MPs as he told the Commons, this statement serves as a reminder that the Prime Minister is accountable to this Parliament, not terms of the US President. The Labour leader insisted a War Powers Act was needed to give Parliament the power to support or stop the government from taking planned military action. He suggested that any military action needed United Nations approval, but Mrs May stressed how, because of Russia's use of veto, she was not prepared for Moscow to be able to veto UK foreign policy. 
Her Tory colleague, Dominic Grieve, the former Attorney General, suggested Mr Corbyn's approach would mean any tyrant with the backing of an amoral state within the Security Council could commit genocide with impunity. In those circumstances, far from upholding the international rules-based system, the reality is that it would be dead, insisted the Conservative backbencher. Ian Blackford, for the SNP, argued that it was perfectly possible for the PM to have recalled Parliament in advance of Saturday's airstrikes. He asked, have the government learned nothing from the Chilcot Review? Once again, we have been dragged into military action with little regard for the humanitarian situation on the ground and no long-term strategic plan. The Highland MP insisted there is no military solution to the crisis. The solution must be political. The PM spent more than three hours on her feet taking questions from 140 backbenchers as well as party leaders. Later, the Speaker granted a so-called three-hour SO24 debate, but which did not have a substantive motion to vote on. Another three-hour debate was granted to Mr Corbyn for Tuesday so MPs could consider MPs' rights to debate and approve military action overseas. If you are blind or partially sighted, or know someone who is, they may be eligible to receive a BWBF Sonata Plus internet audio player where our podcasts are available. To qualify for a free permanent loan from BWBF of a Sonata internet radio, please contact your local agent. Please note you will need to be resident in the UK, registered blind or partially sighted, over the age of eight, and in receipt of a means-tested benefit, or have a parent or guardian in receipt if you are under 18. If you think you qualify, you can find your local agent at www.blind.org.uk. And remember, when setting up the player, ask for Q and Review. Now, back to the main programme. This article from the Herald Scotland, Politics, on the 18th of April 2018. Theresa May wins Commons airstrike vote, but is accused of manipulating Parliament. This article by UK political editor Michael Seattle. Theresa May won a Commons vote on the military action in Syria, but faced an SNP claim that a number 10 intelligence briefing had been used to manipulate certain MPs. During Tuesday's three-hour debate, the Prime Minister insisted British lives would be compromised if it became illegal for governments to launch military action without the prior backing of MPs. The Prime Minister claimed Labour leader Jeremy Corbyn's call for the introduction of a War Powers Act could seriously compromise the safety of the nation. Her remarks came after the UK, the US and France carried out missile strikes on three targets that they said were specifically associated with the Syrian regime's chemical weapons programme. The strikes on Saturday followed an alleged chemical weapons attack in the Syrian city of Douma ten days ago. Miss May's win in Parliament came as local media reports that the experts from the Organisation for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons had arrived in Douma to establish whether chemical weapons were used there. Syrian military leaders confirmed air defence missiles were fired overnight on Monday, although the incident was a false alarm and had no new attack on the country took place. Yuri Filatov, the ambassador of the Russian Federation to Ireland, said that Russia 
and the Syria's regime principal backer was losing the last bit of trust it had with the West and described this as a very dangerous development. During the Commons debate, Miss May told MPs, making it unlawful for Her Majesty's government to undertake any such military intervention without the vote would seriously compromise our national security, our national interests and the lives of British citizens at home and abroad. And for as long as I'm Prime Minister, they will never be allowed to happen. But Mr Corbyn, who has described the Syrian airstrikes as legally questionable and made clear he would only support military intervention with United Nations support, accused the PM of treating Parliament in a cavalier way and of floating a convention set in 2003 to consult MPs before the prospect of military action. He told MPs, I am sorry to say the Prime Minister's decision not to recall Parliament and engage in further military action in Syria last week showed a flagrant disregard for this convention. Mr Corbyn said such a War Powers Act could specify at what point in decision-making processes MPs should be involved, as well as retaining the right of ministers to act in an emergency or in the country's self-defence. Ian Blackford for the SNP criticised the failure of the government to recall Parliament, stressing it was to be deeply regretted that the only people that haven't had a vote were MPs. His nationalist colleague Stuart MacDonald, the SNP defence spokesman, seized on how certain Labour MPs had been invited to Downing Street for a private briefing on the Syria airstrikes by Sir Mark Sedwell, the National Security Advisor. In a point of order, the Glasgow MP said these briefings appear to have been offered to members of the Labour opposition, not on the basis of privacy council status, but on the basis of those opposition members who are sympathetic to the government's position. That leads to concerns that the government is using intelligence briefings to manipulate Parliament and to bolster its own case for its behaviour on the opposition benches. Not on security terms, but on politics. The Tories won the vote 317 votes to 256 in an unusual situation, where they voted for the Labour motion, but the opposition voted against. Mr Corbyn ordered his MPs to oppose the motion to show that the party believed Parliament had not fully considered the issue. But more than 50 of his colleagues rebelled by abstaining. This article by UK political editor Michael Seatle. Richard Leonard to call trade unions to reforge alliance with Labour. An article published in the Herald Scotland of Tuesday the 17th of April 2018. Scottish Labour leader Richard Leonard is to call on trade unions to reforge the alliance with his party. Mr Leonard is expected to outline the case for stronger connections at the Scottish Trades Union Congress in Aviemore on Tuesday. He is also set to describe the Labour movement in Scotland as being at a turning point. Mr Leonard is expected to say, as far as the Scottish Labour Party is concerned, trade unions have a big role to play in the new economy, not just defending your members, but using your members' knowledge, skills and capacities to plan for the future. We need to look afresh at who owns the Scottish economy, why we are so vulnerable to external shocks and why so much wealth leaks out from our country. 
and we need a Scottish industrial strategy because we cannot carry on with business as usual, lurching from one defensive rescue to the next. We need forward planning, economic planning and also environmental planning to tackle humanity's greatest challenge, climate change. We need democracy in our economy, not just when things go wrong, but to help things go right in the first place. We are at a turning point both for the Labour Party and the Labour movement in Scotland. We can reforge the alliance between the industrial and political wings to start winning support for real change, to challenge once and for all austerity, which is a political, not an economic choice, to make the case again for public ownership and an end to PFI, PPP and NPDs, and to secure a lasting redistribution of wealth and power into the hands of the many, not the few. The Herald Scotland. On Thursday, the 19th of April, 2018, Politics Section. Government suffers double defeat over key Brexit legislation. This article unattributed. Peers have inflicted a double defeat on the government over flagship Brexit legislation amid claims they are attempting to prevent the UK leaving the EU. Labour, the Liberal Democrats, crossbenchers and backbench Tories formed an alliance over amendments to the European Union Withdrawal Bill, with one seeking to retain the option of a customs union with the EU and the other to protect people's rights post-Brexit. When one of the customs union amendments was pushed to a vote, peers voted overwhelmingly in favour by 348 votes to 225, majority 123, with another linked amendment approved unopposed. The House of Lords Library reported the 573 peers involved in the vote was the seventh largest turnout ever in the chamber's history, and it included a sizeable Tory rebellion. A total of 24 of the party's peers supported the amendment, including former Cabinet Ministers Lord Heseltine, Lord Lansley and former Minister Lord Willits. The Department for Exiting the European Union expressed its disappointment at the result. Brexit Minister Lord Callanan said that the government did not support the customs union measures as it would require it to report to Parliament on the steps taken towards delivering an objective it has clearly ruled out. He signalled the government's intention to overturn the measures at a later stage, saying before the vote it had no intention to reflect further on the matter. A later vote on Amendment 11, a cross-party move from peers to ensure that existing protections across a range of areas, including employment, equality, health and safety and consumer standards cannot be changed except by primary legislation, was approved by 314 votes to 217, majority of 97. The division list showed there were 14 Tory rebels on this vote. The bill transfers EU law into UK law, but concerns have been raised over the use of so-called Henry VIII powers, which would allow ministers to amend EU rules and regulations when they are transferred onto the UK statute book with little parliamentary scrutiny. Lord Callanan argued that he believed the government had already taken steps to address the concerns, potentially in ways that are even stronger than Labour peer Lady Hater's amendment. Crossbench peer Lord Kerr of Kinlochard, an author of Article 50, opened the bills removing the cross-party customs union proposal and arguing there is a need to try to limit the damage of the UK leaving its largest market. Lord Kerr said, The country voted narrowly to leave the European Union, but no one can argue that it voted knowingly to leave the customs union with the European Union. Tory former Cabinet Minister and Commissioner Chris Patton also supported the proposal, noting there were times in a political career where party loyalty comes way behind trying to stand up for the national interest. But Conservative Viscount Ridley said of the amendment, it's an attempt to wreck this bill and prevent Brexit. 
Earlier, he took aim at the Lib Dems, saying, Ricardo Cobden Gladstone. Those great liberals would be spinning in their grave at the thought that their descendant party today is in favour of this form of trade discrimination. Conservative former Chancellor Lord Lawson of Blaby said vote leave made it absolutely clear leaving the EU meant leaving the customs union and single market. He dismissed trade agreements in favour of a customs union with the EU, adding, I urge the House to reject what is in essence a wrecking amendment. Crossbench peer Lord Billamoria, the founder of Cobra Beer, said that the amendment was about damage limitation as he supported the UK remaining in the customs union. Conservative former Cabinet Minister Lord Forsyth said the change being sought in relation to a customs union was an attempt to create division and confusion in the House of Commons in a bid to block Brexit. He said it was seeking to make the UK's withdrawal from the bloc subject to some conditions about a customs union. Amendments put forward in the unelected chamber were putting the peers against the people. Lord Forsyth said, What's going on here is an exercise by Remainers in the House who refuse to accept the verdict of the British people. I believe they're playing with fire. Labour's Baroness Hater of Kentish Town said the amendment was good for the governance of this country and would save the economy £24 billion over the next 15 years. In a statement, a Department for Exiting the European Union spokeswoman said, We are disappointed that Parliament has voted for this amendment. The fundamental purpose of this bill is to prepare our statute book for exit day. It's not about the terms of our exit. This amendment does not commit the UK to remaining in a customs union with the EU. It requires us to make a statement in Parliament explaining the steps we've taken. Our policy on this subject is very clear. We are leaving the customs union and will establish a new and ambitious customs arrangement with the EU while forging new trade relationships with our partners around the world. This article was unattributed. Remember, this programme is just a fraction of what we produce. You can access more daily content online via our website, qandreview.com forward slash free podcasts for free daily podcasts of the Evening Times and Herald Scotland newspapers, weekly digests of the National Newspaper and weekly full readings of Inside Soap magazine. Now, back to the main programme. This article is from the Herald on the 17th of April 2018, Arts and Entertainment section. TV Review, Queen and Attenborough, Double Act Blossoms, by Alison Rowett, Senior Politics and Features Writer. The Queen's Green Planet, Four Stars, ITV. The Queen is an expert in soft power, murmured Sir David Attenborough on voiceover as he accompanied the monarch on a tour of her private garden at Buckingham Palace. I'll say, in the space of an hour, the 91-year-old bolstered her grandchildren's succession, acquired millions of trees for charity and gave climate change deniers one in the eye. When it comes to soft power, Her Majesty the Queen is a cross between Peter Rabbit and a guided missile. ITM Productions had been offered the chance to give the monarchy an hour's free publicity for the Queen's Commonwealth Canopy, a project aiming to protect forests across the globe, and who could refuse? While much of the programme was padding, complete with footage of William, Kate and Harry planting trees all over the world, it's what our family do, said Prince Harry, as if introducing a firm of chopping gardeners, The main double act of Windsor and Attenborough did not disappoint. 
Spying two London plane trees planted at the garden's entrance by Victoria and Albert, Sir David Mews, one really wants to climb them. The Queen smiled. Now that would be appointment television. Nearby were the trees she had planted for her children. They had plaques beside them, she said, leaving the audience to work out she was saying plaques. Sir David Julie hurried off to read the plaques, coming back to say one tree was Andrew's and so was the other. They can't both be Andrew, the Queen ruled, and off he trotted again. Tree number two was in fact Edward's. We also found out the royal dogs hate conkers, too prickly, and the Queen is no fan of elf and safety. Wasn't it recently somebody tried to stop children playing conkers, she gasped, as Attenborough commiserated. We also learned what a useless lot politicians can be. Frank Field, MP, who had the original idea for the canopy, revealed Tony Blair had been enthusiastic, but nothing happened. Gordon Brown had made no response at all. And the Tory Lib Dem coalition were hopeless. The Queen, in contrast, jumped at the plan. At hour's end, we were back in the garden with Attenborough musing what a difference the canopy could make. It might change the climate again, said the Queen quietly, as a bough waving in the summer breeze. It might indeed, said Sir David. Swing on that, climate change deniers. Such was the pull of their double act. Angelina Jolie turning up to plant trees in Namibia seemed like an intrusion. When it comes to the Queen of the Desert and further afield, a certain old lady in her garden showed it takes a lot to put the original in the shade. Arts and Entertainment section, TV reviews, Queen and Attenborough Double Act Blossoms by Alison Rowett, Senior Politics and Features Writer. This article from the Herald on Friday the 13th of April 2018. Arts. Arts News. Poetry illustrations at National Library, Scottish Talent at RPS Awards, Spark in Chinese. This article by Phil Miller. Illustrations of poems by Alan Ramsay, Robert Burns and James Thompson are now on display at the National Library of Scotland. The exhibition includes items from the 1780s onwards. Professor Sandro Jung, Senior Fellow of the Alexander von Humboldt Foundation, and Rare Books curator Dr Annette Hagen co-curated the show called Illustrating Scottish Poems. Works on display at the library include Alan Ramsay's Gentle Shepherd, Robert Burns's Tam O'Shanter, early editions of James McPherson's Ossian Cycle and James Thompson's The Seasons. Illustrating Scottish Poems is on display at the library on George IV Bridge, Edinburgh, until the 17th of June www.nls.uk There is a strong showing for Scottish organisations in this year's Royal Philharmonic Society Music Awards shortlists. The Dunedin Consort, Scottish Ensemble, guitarist Sean Scheib and Scottish Opera are all in the running for the prestigious awards. Scheib has received two nominations as his Scottish Opera. Scheib has been shortlisted for both the RPS Music Award for Instrumentalist and the RPS Music Award for Young Artists, while Scottish Opera is listed for Pelias and Melisande and for two projects engaging the youngest and oldest, Bambino, an opera for six to 18-month-old babies, and Memory Spinners, a weekly project for people living with dementia. 
Dunedin Consort is up for Best Ensemble, with Scottish Ensemble shortlisted in the Chamber Music category. Winners will be announced at the RPS Music Awards Dinner on the 9th of May in London and broadcast on BBC Radio 3 on the 14th of May. www.rpsmusicawards.com A new Chinese edition of The Prime of Miss Jean Brodie by Muriel Spark will be published in China to mark the 100th anniversary of Muriel Spark's birth. The publication will carry a foreword written by First Minister Nicola Sturgeon, who announced the new publication at an event at Fudan University in Shanghai. It contains a foreword by the First Minister Nicola Sturgeon, who is in China this week. Jenny Niven, Head of Literature at Creative Scotland, said, It is just fantastic that Muriel Sparks' centenary is being honoured in China in this way, As a true internationalist herself, I'd like to think Muriel would be delighted too that her work is being introduced to new audiences around the world. Berlin slash Polygon publish Sparks books in the UK. www.berlin.co.uk This article by Phil Miller. That's the end of part one. After the break, we'll be coming back with more great articles from the Herald Scotland. This is a message from the NFB UK, the National Federation of the Blind of the United Kingdom. What is NFB UK? The National Federation of the Blind of the United Kingdom, NFB UK, is a self-help organisation of blind, partially sighted and deafblind people helping each other to help ourselves. It's an independent, non-political charity that campaigns for greater rights, citizenship and independent living. How does NFB UK work? We have a network of branches around the country where members and supporters can meet locally. The branches keep our members in touch with their local community and represent their views to local and national authorities and society in general. We provide information for our members in Braille, large print, audio and electronic formats. We work with local and national organisations to improve the quality of life for all blind, partially sighted, deaf-blind people and those whose sight impairment is part of multidisability. NFB UK campaigns to defend essential benefits and social care services and seeks wider provision of these services and equipment to help us lead independent lives. We have local branches around the country and are aiming to open new branches in more areas. What are the benefits of joining NFB UK? You meet other blind, partially sighted and deafblind people with an interest in peer support, campaigning and making a difference. Members decide and shape which issues and campaigns to focus on, and you decide how you want to work on campaigns. It's free to join this year. You will benefit from our special offer of one year's free membership. You can receive regular updates and share information through newsletter, e-group and our audio magazine for members. Founded in 1947, we have played a leading role in Articles for the Blind postal concessions, the retention of different banknote sizes according to denomination, and tactile street paving. Current issues. We are currently active in issues around shared spaces and the built environment, disabled students' allowance, social care and rehabilitation, and the NHS and accessible information standards. Join us. If you are blind, partially sighted or deafblind, become a full member. We welcome sighted people to join as associate members. Any donation you can make will assist us to further our campaigning. For more information, visit www.nfbuk.org. Contact us via post, NFB UK, Sir John Wilson House, 215 Kirkgate, Wakefield, West Yorkshire, 
WF11JG. That's Whiskey Foxtrot 1, 1 Juliet Golf. Telephone us 01924 291 313 or email admin at nfbuk.org. Also on Twitter and Facebook at nfbuk. Now back to the main programme. This is Side 2, coming up. Shona Craven, truth stranger than fiction in our new Trust No One era. May's startling ineptitude has the nation up in arms. Amid bombs and bullets, a Syrian information war. Herald View, time to reduce concentration of alcohol outlets. Robert McNeil, everything has to be in a hurry in this slapdash world. Scottish Athletics Performance Director Roger Harkins steps down. This article by Susan Egglestaff. Susan Egglestaff. Issue of trans athletes still far from resolved. Karen Bennett delighted to be named Glasgow 2018 Ambassador and wants to pick up silverware on home soil. Contractor woes are increasing in wake of Corellian. Scottish crisp manufacturer Mackey's enjoys success in key Asian market. The Herald Scotland, on Friday the 13th of April 2018. Opinion section. Shona Craven. Truth Stranger Than Fiction in Our New Trust No One Era. This article by columnist Shona Craven. Within days we should learn what type of nerve agent was used, and whether the victim is expected to recover from the attack, but it's likely to take much longer for the full geopolitical consequences to become clear. I'm talking of course about the latest plot development in Homeland, the US espionage drama that started from the premise of you don't need to be mad to work for the CIA, but it helps, and has been running with it for seven series. Many viewers abandoned the show when they considered it had become too far-fetched, which is a shame because real life has now caught up. Indeed, the writers had to hastily incorporate an assassination plot into series six so that their boringly level-headed president could turn against her nation's intelligence services in dramatic fashion. Of course, many previous TV shows have proved prescient, but UK viewers may be having a particularly hard time distinguishing fact from fiction at the moment. Homeland's first assassination by nerve agent was screened here just three weeks before the events in Salisbury, and the first suggestion that Russia was behind that fictional killing came when Sergei and Yulia Skripal were still in critical condition. So, is this merely throwaway Sunday night entertainment, or could it be something more sinister? Is there a mainstream media conspiracy to churn out Russia-phobic propaganda and reboot the Cold War? Many certainly seem to think so, and a number of factors are fueling their suspicions. Firstly, there's the fact that the UK has a comedian for a foreign secretary, a man who, a mere 20 years ago, was best known for appearing on Have I Got News For You. It's not unreasonable to conclude that Boris Johnson cannot possibly be as incompetent as he appears, and that his incompetence must therefore be a cover for nefarious behaviour. Certainly, Mr Johnson is neither stupid nor the total buffoon he played for laughs and primetime exposure, but it's entirely possible he simply isn't on top of his brief. Did he really mean to suggest that scientists at Porton Down had told him directly that the Novichok used to poison the Skripals had come from Russia, 
Or was he simply busking his way through for an interview and hoping for the best? It's hard for most of us to conceive the arrogance required for the latter, but most of us didn't go to Eton or Oxford. Secondly, there's the sheer weirdness of the events in Salisbury, which at first glance appear to have come straight out of a Lacar novel, but have got stranger and stranger as more information was revealed. When I first read that Sergei Skripal kept a pair of pet guinea pigs, the animals that are literally synonymous with experimental research, I assumed that it must be nonsense. When I read in the Daily Mail the claim from a close friend that he spent hours alone in his home playing Russian war games and stroking his pets, I wondered if someone had been pulling the journalist's leg. Commentary on the death of these rodents has queried why no one checked on them before they died of thirst, the whereabouts of their remains, and whether the government's account of what happened to them can be trusted. In all of this, my key question, how many adult men keep guinea pigs as pets, seems to have been neglected. Is no one else wondering that? If not, should I just don a tinfoil hat and be done with it? If you said two months ago that I'd be sitting here googling guinea pig autopsy results, I'd have told you not to be so ridiculous. Thirdly and fourthly, and most importantly, there's the inconvenient recent history of the UK and US starting wars on false pretenses, combined with the overwhelming volume of information and misinformation now available online. When the dodgy dossier claiming Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction was issued to British journalists in 2003, Facebook didn't exist. Twitter was still three years off. The British public had to watch Channel 4 News or read about its investigations in the papers to learn why this source was not quite what Tony Blair and his colleagues were making it out to be. Now, however, news, views and wild claims are everywhere and can spread like wildfire within minutes. The latest art installation by the brilliant David Mack, which went on show in Glasgow this week, aims to convey the flood of information we receive daily. It's an imposing work made out of thousands of newspapers, containing a volume of information that no individual could ever hope to properly digest and evaluate. It also incorporates hazard warnings and radiation symbols, another timely artistic reference, perhaps to convey the sense that just being in close proximity to this overwhelming amount of reading material can be hazardous to our health. So, where can a line be drawn between healthy scepticism and easy-to-dismiss conspiracy theory? The suggestion that Russia did not carry out the attack on the Skripals is certainly not up there with the claims that 9-11 was an inside job or the moon landing was faked, but some theories about the broader motives of the UK government, scaring us into keeping Trident, waging war to avoid Indiref 2, take us into far-fetched territory, right? The big problem here is that we've been lied to before, and now we don't know who's telling the truth. Facebook recently introduced new controls to combat the spread of fake news on its site, but who will police the news police? On Friday, the company's CEO, Mark Zuckerberg, said the changes will make it a lot harder for anyone to do what the Russians did during the 2016 election and use fake accounts and pages to run ads. But by Tuesday, he was being grilled by two US Senate committees about how Cambridge Analytica got its paws on the data of Facebook users. It all makes you nostalgic for the days when the top-rated TV shows were about navel-gazing New Yorkers and alien-hunting FBI agents. We may not yet have found proof of extraterrestrial life, but perhaps Mulder and Scully had the right idea. Trust no one. This article was accompanied by an online poll, which at the time of recording is closed. The total votes cast were 9,583. The question, should the UK join military action in Syria, was as follows. Yes, 4%. No, 95%. Not sure, 1%. This article was by columnist Shona Craven.
This article is from the Herald on the 17th of April 2018, Opinion Section. May's startling ineptitude has the nation up in arms by Andrew McKee. It takes a truly startling level of political ineptitude to unite almost the whole country, including most members of your own party, in denouncing your policies as not only moronic but cruel. But the Home Office has managed it with its truly abysmal handling of the case of the Windrush generation. These are Commonwealth citizens who arrived in the UK before restrictions were imposed by the 1971 Immigration Act, some of whom who have now been told they have no leave to remain in Britain unless they can prove they were residents before January 1973, when the Act came into force. You might think it mind-bogglingly incompetent that the authorities have, for the past four decades, apparently not kept any records. And you might think that, if you could show that you were at school in Britain in 1950s or 1960s, or had paid decades' worth of national insurance, that would settle the matter. Not a bit of it. Some of the cases, frankly, are incredible. Paulette Wilson, who arrived in Britain aged 10 and is now 61, was dragged off to a detention centre and very nearly deported to Jamaica, a country she hasn't visited for 50 years. And where she has no relatives. For much of her time in the UK, during which she was paying her taxes, she was a cook at the Houses of Parliament. Others have been deported or lost their jobs or been denied health care or British passports. Yet all of these people are here legally and entirely entitled to British residency. This is so clearly a scandal that almost everyone is up in arms about it. Yet number 10 at first even refused to meet the leaders of the Commonwealth countries to address the issue. This isn't only Guardian readers having a go at the Tories. The Daily Mail is just as outraged. The Sun ran a leader denouncing it, which Ruth Davidson approvingly retweeted. Jacob Rees-Mogg described the Home Office's stance as disgraceful. You have to wonder quite how dim you would have to be not to have anticipated this reaction. No one other than out-and-out racists could ever possibly have questioned the status of people in this situation. And the reason that these cases have arisen is because of the idiocy of Theresa May, who, as Home Secretary, introduced the hostile environment policy and the incompetence, bureaucracy and intransigence of the civil service. This isn't a question of granting some kind of amnesty to illegal immigrants who have been here for a long time. They have always been here legally, and the burden of proof being demanded by the authorities is entirely unreasonable. There was a belated U-turn in the government stance at lunchtime yesterday, but I fear it exposes a deeper malaise which arises from Mrs May's attitude, forged over years at the Home Office. Almost all long-serving Home Secretaries have a distorted view of government and tend to develop a tendency towards authoritarianism. And it's not confined to the Tories. David Blunkett, Charles Clark and John Reid all became increasingly power-crazed. They invariably overestimate the importance of issues such as crime, which has been falling for decades, security and immigration, because they fall within their department's remit. I happen to be in favour of unqualified free movement for the reasons that I am in favour of free trade. In an age of globalisation and service industries, 
restrictions on movement of labour are as counterproductive as tariff barriers, and it's a matter of empirical fact that immigration has been an economic benefit rather than a cost. Despite that, I accept there's nothing intrinsically wrong or racist about discussing immigration. It is, on one level, government's primary duty to define its borders and sovereignty. Indeed, public discourse suffered because of a general consensus that even to raise the issue was questionable. But Mrs May seems to think that the public is as obsessed by the issue as she is. Having campaigned for Remain during the EU referendum, her idea of implementing Brexit begins and ends with halting free movement. Instead of listening to liberal Brexiters from her own party who wanted greater trade freedom, she lined up with demented little Englanders who think Nigel Farage as a statement, even though they are a tiny minority. Polling has consistently shown that very few Leave voters had immigration as their priority. The status of EU citizens resident in the UK should have been dealt with in five seconds by simply announcing that their right to remain was not in question, but instead she made a pig's ear of it. That's a typical home office mentality, where common sense is ignored in a bid to look strong. It's a stance usually simultaneously undermined by a proven inability to run a bath. It was perhaps predictable that the Prime Minister's clueless notion of what Brexit ought to entail would leave us open to the prospect of a settlement that makes matters worse, though some of us hope that might yet be averted. But few could have foreseen that her myopia and ineptitude would lead to the rights of British citizens being comprehensively trampled on as well. Opinion section. May's startling ineptitude has the nation up in arms by Andrew McKee. Herald Scotland, 10th of April 2018. Opinion section. Amid bombs and bullets, a Syrian information war. This article by Chief Reporter David Leesk. If you're reading this, you're at war. This page, online or in print, is a battlefield. So is the rest of this paper, your Facebook and Twitter feeds, and everything you see on TV or YouTube. That, at least, is how a new breed of information soldiers backing Syria's Bashar al-Assad and Russia's Vladimir Putin are trained to see the media, both mainstream and social. It might not feel like it, but even before America, Britain and France fired their rockets on Saturday night and Sunday morning, you were on an invisible military front line. Or you were, if you picked up your phone or laptop. The latest crisis kicked off after pictures emerged of what Syrian rescue workers, opposition activists and major Western governments said was a chemical weapons attack at Douma outside Damascus on April the 7th. France, which once ruled Syria, has said it has proof of the atrocity, which witnesses said killed more than 40 people. Russia, which now props up the Syrian regime, says the footage was staged. Russia and Syria's propaganda machine paved the way for that theory. Ben Nimmo, an analyst who monitors social media output for the Atlantic Council's Digital Forensic Research Lab, first recorded a spike in the term false flag about Duma as early as April the 8th. It came from Russian, Syrian and far-right sources, including former British National Party leader Nick Griffin, whose Twitter avatar is now a Russian and Syrian flag crossed. This weekend, some foreign journalists were taken to Duma by regime minders. One was Pearson Sharp a correspondent for the pro-Trump One America News Network. He said he interviewed 30 to 40 people close to the scene of what he called the alleged attack. All, he said, told him they loved Mr Assad 
and the events of April the 7th were staged by what he called terrorists, the term used by the Syrian regime for the Saudi-backed Islamist group Jaish al-Islam, which had controlled the town until recently. Another journalist, veteran independent correspondent Robert Fisk, reported similar stories from those he met on the trip, stories he acknowledged very different to those who have fled the site. He added, It did occur to me that the citizens of Duma lived so isolated from each other for so long that news, in our sense of the word, simply had no meaning to them. Mr Fisk, who has been both hailed as a hero and condemned as a stooge for his Duma reporting, may have a point in his side. There is an old saying that truth is the first casualty of war. We might need a new version that news is the first weapon of war, at least for authoritarian regimes. And, of course, they want you to think that everything is propaganda and we all get to believe whatever news you like. Remember the confirmed chemical attacks in Syria in 2013? The Kremlin TV station says they were staged too. This station, says its editor, is an information weapon. Back in 2013, she said, The information weapon is used in critical moments. War is always a critical moment. Her weapon has been deployed. Watch it explode on a screen near you. Whatever, if anything, international inspectors ever find at Duma. Whatever the facts. This article by Chief Reporter David Leesk. Here at Q&A Review, we're always looking for more volunteer presenters, producers and sound technicians to volunteer with us and help produce our daily talking newspapers for the blind. If you're interested, please leave a message on our answering service at 0141 772 3976 or email us at information at qandreview.com. This article from the Glasgow Herald, Thursday the 19th of April. Opinion. Herald View. Time to reduce concentration of alcohol outlets. This article is unattributed. Scotland is a society soaked in alcohol, but a new study has shown that some parts of the country are more saturated than others. And where that is the case, crime rates are higher. Research by Alcohol Focus Scotland, in conjunction with the Universities of Edinburgh and Glasgow, reveals that crime rates were more than four times greater in neighbourhoods with the most alcohol outlets compared to those with the least. That was for Scotland as a whole. In some areas, such as Aberdeen, South Ayrshire and Moray, the rate was almost eight times higher. Also, alcohol-related deaths were double where outlets were most prevalent, five times higher in Dundee City and East Ayrshire, and alcohol-related hospitalisations were almost twice as high, four times greater in Argyll and Butte. The message is clear. In some areas more than others, people are being positively encouraged to drink. They are subjected to more marketing and more normalisation of the product, to a ubiquitous temptation which, when risked too frequently, not only leads to abnormalities in their health, but to an increase in crime, so often the disastrous companion to alcohol abuse. The effect of this on our hospital and police services is well known, and where these are put under greater pressure, the impact hits us all. Today, most drinking in Scotland is done at home, with bottles of pleasurable poison bought from off-sales, including supermarkets and their express outlets. There are 40% more alcohol outlets in the most deprived neighbourhoods and 90% more off-sales in particular. 
bearing that in mind, it is salutary to learn from the study that in 2016-17, local licensing boards approved 97% of applications for new premises. Bearing in mind also the link made here between the availability and crime, this at least indicates an area where action might be taken. Licensing boards, which are due to publish their new policies in November, can use the information provided in this study to stop over-provision in areas where this is a proven concern. They cannot undo what is already done, but they, but they can prevent further increases, and it may be that in the new annual reports they must produce from next year, there will be an onus to, to prove that they have been active in this direction. Minimum unit pricing brought in by the Scottish Government doubtless will save lives. It was a welcome first step in the battle against alcohol abuse. Now, as Alcohol Focus Scotland has advocated, the next step must be to prevent further increases in alcohol availability. This could involve investigating how to limit alcohol provision per postcode, so to speak, and even to consider taking action against retailers who flood poor areas in particular with drink. Most of us might acknowledge that drink in moderation is one of life's joys, but when overdone, the consequences on health are deleterious. In addition, where it is concentrated in areas that have enough problems already, crime can be the result. The trouble isn't just that alcohol is everywhere in Scotland. It is that, in some places, it is all but poured down people's throats. Everyone has a choice, of course, but the constant temptation, even exhortation in some areas, makes it easier for an occasional pleasure to become too prevalent in people's lives, with disastrous consequences. That this results in crime where alcohol outlets are more prevalent is an extremely serious finding, and one that national legislators and local licensing boards will do well to consider when drawing up policies. This article from the Herald Scotland, Opinion, on 13th of April 2018, Robert McNeil. Everything has to be in a hurry in this slapdash world. This article by columnist Robert McNeil. Time is money, which doubtless explains why the respected Royal Bank of Scotland is reportedly cutting mobile banking services for some rural communities to 15 minutes. Some of you with your fancy portable telephones and nostril-sized computers might say it can all be done on the internet too, Ken. But not everyone likes to bank that way. Elderly or otherwise peculiar people might not be online. Small businesses dealing in cash and... Similarly, quaint paraphernalia might need their bank to be physically rather than virtually present. Only people might enjoy the social contact. That said, banks are not social workers and have no obligation to help society. They exist to make money and, as we've already demonstrated conclusively, money is time. Hence, the need for speed when dealing with the public. Only customer. Hello, it's a nice day. Mobile banker? No, it isn't. Next! Think of the pressure in a bank queue with a 15-minute stop. Perhaps there's a deaf old lady at the front who can't find her purse. Exasperated voices shouting, it's on your head. She'd turn out of town by desperate depositors. What a shame. We live in such 
brusque times, one of the joys of looking at old photographs or films is to see people standing about, just watching the world go by. They are passing the time of day. Time, in other words, is where it should be in their hands. You don't see that nowadays. It's all hurry, hurry, hurry. Even Armageddon is accelerating. World leaders don't work with slow old paper anymore. It's all instant tweets punted out to the world before any time has been spent on that old luxury. Thought. You can imagine Sir Neville Chamberlain returning from Munich, waving his iPad and saying, I have in my hand a tweet, but today, very shortly, that's how the world will end. Not with a bang, but with a tweet. However, ignoring humanity's immunite desire for the moment and returning to more depressing subjects of banking, no one except me is arguing that we should live in a time warp. Online banking is very useful indeed. My bank doesn't tweet as far as I'm aware, which is to say not very, but it does send me weekly texts warning that if I don't bung in some money before 3 o'clock, I'll incur charges that exceed the amount by which I'm overdrawn. I text back saying, Thanks, I hope you're well, love you, but like most busy online people, they don't get involved in conversations. Do you ever wait ages for your mates to reply to an important email? Pint? Only to find that rather than engage with you personally, they've been making pan announcements to Twitter, and I use the word pan advisedly. There's a time and a place for nothing. Everybody's at it, but not just the banks. We're all pressed for time. GPs give you ten minutes to state your case, as if anybody these days has just one illness. I'm right depressed, Ken. Also, my news agent says this spot could indicate non-contact, syphilis, or or I've lost an eye. Still, you know what they say, 10 minutes is a great tailor of the same in hospital. Patch him up and ship him out. Time is money, beds are budgets, and you can forget about that ambulance home. You'll be fine. Just try not to walk on your foot. Look here's a leaflet. Oops, sorry, that's the funeral service flyer. Never mind. Bye! Computers these days are always encouraging you to set up to-do lists so that you manage your time efficiently. Couples even schedule intimacy. Friend coming out for a glass of wine. Cheryl. Cheryl. Sorry, Beryl. I've got cuddling from 8.10 to 8.45pm. Is speed dating still a thing? How can you tell in 10 minutes if someone is your sole partner? In my experience, it takes people about 5 years to realise they hate you. Pressure of time also forces people to be more decisive, which is always a mistake. Most of the world's catastrophes have been caused by decisive people. If Hitler, Mao, had spent more time dithering, terrible, treble tragedies might have been avoided. Adolf, I can't decide between taking up pilots and conquering the world. Tell you what, I'll think about it for a few decades. True, there have been movements to slow things down. Say, watching 10-hour films of train journeys or spending at least 8 minutes eating your dinner in the company of friends. But these are like you, Canute standing against yonder tide. And what to do and tide wait for readers? Correct, no person. Now we're at the end of the column. How time flies.
this article with columnist Robert McNeil. This article from the Glasgow Herald, Thursday the 19th of April. Sport. Scottish Athletics Performance Director Roger Harkins steps down. This article by Susan Egglestaff. With the dust from Scotland's most successful overseas Commonwealth Games ever still settling, it has been revealed that Scottish Athletics Performance Director Roger Harkins will step down from his role. Harkins has been in position for three and a half years and has overseen one of the sport's most successful periods with a record number of Scottish track and field athletics being selected for the Rio Olympics and the London 2017 World Championships. Harkins also led the Team Scotland track, field and marathon team at the recently concluded Gold Coast 2018 Commonwealth Games in his role as head coach, where the squad collected five medals, their best medal haul since the 1990 Commonwealth Games. The medal winners included a silver from flag bearer and 400-metre hurdler Ailey Doyle, bronze from hammer thrower Mark Dry and a silver from para sprinter Maria Lyle. Harkins is a former coach to Olympian Lee McConnell and has said he would like to spend more time with his family who live in Cheshire. I feel I have played a key role in supporting and developing the athletics and programmes during a period of great success for the organisation, but in particular for Scottish athletics and coaches, said Harkins. I am leaving behind a strong staff team and a strong platform in which my successor can build upon. I wish everyone within athletics in Scotland all the best for the future and will no doubt continue to be visible at events across the UK. Tributes to the job Harkins did have already begun to flow in, with Scottish Athletics Chief Executive Mark Munro saying, We would like to thank Roger for his time at Scottish Athletics. He and the performance team did well to prepare Scottish Athletics and coaches for the Commonwealth Games in Australia, which has been a main focus for him since he's been in the post from the autumn of 2014. During his period as performance director, Scottish athletics and coaches have delivered strong performances on the world stage and that has been capped by five medals at the Commonwealth Games in the Gold Coast. We can now look forward to further success under the leadership of a new performance director as we will make the next step to further develop programmes of support for athletes and coaches in Scotland to ensure continued success on the world stage. It's a vital role for the coming years and our aspiration has to be to maintain and enhance performance levels by Scottish athletes and give guidance and leadership to their coaches. If you are blind or partially sighted, or know someone who is, they may be eligible to receive a BWBF Sonata Plus internet audio player, where our podcasts are available. To qualify for a free permanent loan from BWBF of a Sonata internet radio, please contact your local agent. Please note you will need to be resident in the UK, registered blind or partially sighted, over the age of 8, and in receipt of a means-tested benefit, or have a parent or guardian in receipt if you are under 18. If you think you qualify, you can find your local agent at www.blind.org.uk. And remember, when setting up the player, 
Ask for Q and Review. Now back to the main program. The Herald, Scotland, on Friday, the thirteenth of April, twenty eighteen. Sports section. Susan Egglestaff. Issue of trans athletes still far from resolved. This article by sports columnist Susan Egglestaff. The Commonwealth Games has largely passed without too much controversy so far, but there has been one issue that's caused quite a stir. The entry of New Zealand weightlifter Laurel Hubbard in the women's weightlifting competition, in which she competed earlier this week. Until 2014, Hubbard was a man known as Gavin. Hubbard was strong favourite to win gold in the plus 90 kilogram category, but an injury mid-competition saw her withdraw and consequently diminished in the controversy somewhat. However, the pre-event comments about Hubbard's inclusion highlighted how unclear the position is regarding transgender athletes, and how hard it is going to be for sport to reach a ruling that keeps everyone happy, if that's even possible. Those who opposed Hubbard being allowed to compete against women argue that she has natural physical advantages as a result of being born male. Men are stronger, more powerful, and have higher levels of testosterone than women, and so there are many who feel that with Hubbard having spent most of her life enjoying the physical advantages of being male, she has an unfair advantage when competing against women. That Hubbard did not become Elite Sports' first transgender major championship gold medalist earlier in the week certainly took some of the sting out of the story, but in fact her injury has only delayed the argument rather than defused it. The question of whether transgender women should be allowed to compete against female athletes needs to be clearer than it currently is, because as things stand, any transgender athlete will, as Hubbard was, be subjected to a barrage of abuse online. And yet Hubbard did nothing wrong. She complied with every rule, including undergoing tests which prove her testosterone levels are below a threshold set by the International Olympic Committee. But even these testosterone rules are far from straightforward, as has been witnessed in the case of Castor Semenya, who's already won gold in the 1500 metres in Gold Coast earlier this week and will go for her second title this morning UK time in the 800 metres. The South African middle distance runner, who is hyperandrogenic, has been subjected to years of abuse by observers, comments from fellow athletes about the advantage she possesses and invasive tests to prove her eligibility to compete. The debate about Semenya and other hyperandrogenic athletes is far from over. In November, Athletics' governing body, the IAAF, will find out if they're able to bring in a rule which limits the permitted levels of testosterone in female athletes in certain events. It's a ruling the IAAF has already tried to pass in 2011, but ultimately rules imposing limits on testosterone were suspended. The challenge for those at the top of the sport when it comes to both transgender and hyperandrogenic athletes is that the world is changing and that they are only going to encounter more cases such as this as time goes on. No longer do people generally think that you're born a man or a woman and that's it forever. And so if sport wants to be the inclusive place it claims to be, things need to be clarified. In one way, hyperandrogenic athletes should be a clearer case. Semenya and those like her were indisputably born female, and so should she be forced to take drugs to artificially lower her testosterone levels in order for her to be allowed to compete. I struggle to see how that's the best solution. And similarly, should trans people be forever excluded from competing in elite sport just because of how they were born? Again, it's hard to see how that's the best answer to that question. And yet the ambiguity that currently exists around eligibility is doing nobody any favours. Not the athlete themselves, nor their competitors, nor the spectators of the sport. There will likely never be a solution that keeps everybody happy. This is an issue with far too many grey areas for any straightforward answer to be found. 
But sport needs to work harder to reach a place in which any female athlete who doesn't quite fit within the norm is not made the centre of a controversy so substantial that it would be enough to put anyone off sport for life. This article is by Susan Egelstaff. This article is from the Herald on the 17th of April 2018 sports section. Karen Bennett delighted to be named Glasgow 2018 Ambassador and wants to pick up silverware on home soil by Susan Egglestaff, sports columnist. Karen Bennett has had quite a few days. At the weekend, the Olympic silver medalist won the all-important British rowing trials and then yesterday she was named as an ambassador for Glasgow 2018 at which rowing is one of the six sports Scotland will host. 29-year-old Bennett has been based at GB's training camp in the south of England for almost a decade and with a distinct lack of opportunities to race at major championships in her home country, she cannot wait for Glasgow 2018, which kicks off in August. It will be great having this event in Scotland, she says, and to be an ambassador is just incredible. I've loved sport all my life, so to be involved like this is brilliant. It's really good for the sport to be part of Glasgow 2018 because I think it will do so much to lift the profile of rowing. It would be great to win a medal in Scotland, especially in front of the home crowd. I think that will give me an extra push. Bennett has already made her mark on the international scene in the past few years. In 2016, she was part of the women's eight that finished in second place at the Rio Olympics, as well as becoming European champion, and last year she added a European bronze in the pair to her collection. Bennett's trials victory in the pairs at the weekend alongside Rebecca Shorten illustrates the excellent shape she is in, but she admits that with so much riding on it, which boats the rowers end up in, are partially decided from the trials. The event is an anxious few days. The trials are stressful. You have to be in your top form because they're so important, she said. And the other part is that you're racing against your teammates and that can be quite difficult at times. But you just have to try not to get distracted by any of that. You have a preference in your head as to what boat you'd like to be in, but you just have to trust the coach's judgment. With a number of Scots, including Bennett's fellow Olympians, Stuart Innes and Alan Sinclair, likely to be a part of the GP team for this summer's European Championships, the Scottish representation in Glasgow is likely to be healthy, which Bennett is delighted to see. It's great that there's quite a few Scots doing well in the GB team. It's nice to have a little Scottish group, and we always have Scottish things that we say to each other, she laughed. It makes it feel like you're in a home from home and we all get on really well. So it's good to have that. Sports section. Karen Bennett delighted to be named Glasgow 2018 Ambassador and wants to pick up silverware on home soil by Susan Egglestaff, sports columnist. Remember, this programme is just a fraction of what we produce. You can access more daily content online via our website, qandreview.com forward slash free podcasts for free daily podcasts of the Evening Times and Herald Scotland newspapers, weekly digests of the National Newspaper and weekly full readings of Inside Soap magazine. Now, back to the main programme. This article from the Herald on Monday the 16th of April 2018. Business. 
Contractor woes are increasing in wake of Corillian. This article by Kevin Scott. The vulnerability of more than 180,000 people working in Scotland's construction sector has been exposed by an endemic cash flow issue. Compounded by the collapse of Corillian, a leading independent accountant has warned. The industry is facing an unprecedented sequence of problems, according to Campbell Dallas, and the firm believes this is likely to trigger further business failures, particularly among smaller supply chain contractors. Derek Forsyth, head of recovery at Campbell Dallas, warned of four major issues affecting order books and compounding cash flow problems across the industry. These are a marked fall in major public infrastructure projects, prolonged severe weather, the collapse of a first-tier contractor and persistent economic uncertainty. He said, This is probably the most challenging period I have known for the construction sector. The industry is beset with an endemic cash flow issue. Mr Forsyth said businesses aim to retain cash for as long as possible, which tends to affect smaller companies trading from one job to another. Coupled with fewer contracts and wider economic and bad weather issues, many firms are facing a very tough time. He added, the Carillion collapse once again exposed the vulnerability of smaller firms down the supply chain to the failure of the principal contractor. Mr Forsyth said there was a pressing need for intervention to ensure smaller businesses are paid on time. He also backed calls for the establishment of an independent body that could be charged with managing a construction cash flow facility initially for publicly financed projects. This article by Kevin Scott. Scottish crisps manufacturer Mackey's enjoys success in key Asian market. An article by Ian McConnell, group business editor, published in the Herald Scotland of Tuesday the 17th of April 2018. Mackey's at Taypak has exported 20 container loads of Chris to Japan in the last two months, beating its target. The joint venture between Aberdeenshire-based Mackey's of Scotland and the Taylor family's Perthshire potato farming business said it has sent a total of 2.5 million packets of Chris to Asia over the last 12 months. It cited new distribution across markets such as Taiwan, Thailand and South Korea, as well as continuing sales to the likes of China and Singapore. James Taylor, commercial director at Mackey's of Taypak, said Asia has proved to be a key market for our export sales and although China was historically our biggest market outside of the United Kingdom, we are delighted that Japan has now taken first place and appears to be going from strength to strength. Mackey's at Taypak sells its Scottish crisp to 28 countries worldwide, with its most recent additions being Afghanistan and Pakistan. Thank you for listening to this week's edition of The Herald Scotland. This weekly talking newspaper digest was a Q&Review recording service production. The readers were volunteers at Q&Review and the producer was Jay Kidd. Q&Review Recording Service Limited is a registered Scottish charity, number SC018016. Our registered office is at 18 Crowhill Road, Bishop Briggs, Glasgow, G641QY. Remember, you can always get in contact with us by email at information at qandreview.com or by leaving us a message on our answering service at 0141 772 3976.